Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I am Pat Iyer, and I have the pleasure of bringing to you a perspective into the world of the very busy EMT. Those are the people you know who scoop up the wounded and the dead off the side of the road and bring them to the emergency department. And Valerie Creel has the advantage of being a registered nurse and in having a history of working as an EMT for several years. She also has background in critical care, trauma, neuro, medical ICU. She knows all the bells, the whistles, the beeps, and the alarms, and is sharing her expertise with us today at my request to bring us deeper into the world of the EMT. You may be reviewing medical records generated by the EMS, the emergency medical services, and there are paramedics and EMTs, emergency medical technicians who are documenting in the medical record. Our goal today is to help you get a better feel for how that world works and that knowledge helps you when you're working with attorneys. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to your podcast for years, so it's really an honor and privilege. Well, thank you. I told Valerie just before we started recording that we are now entering our eighth year of Legal Nurse Podcast. As of yesterday was our birthday, our eighth birthday, and she is the first guest of the next year of shows. And she has graciously agreed to start off with that first question of what is the difference between an EMT and a paramedic? So an EMT is someone who is an emergency medical technician and they provide basic life support care. So an EMT would provide CPR, bleeding control, um, long bone immobilization, and in some settings they assist the paramedic and we would also drive the ambulance. Um, the paramedic does do advanced life support, so they would do advanced airway management, they can do um, medication administration, they can do invasive procedures, um, such as pleural decompressions and things like that. And the protocols do vary from state to state, and for paramedics, they vary from county to county. From county to county, that's interesting. Yeah, but the EMS... Um, agency for each state governs EMTs. So when I was an EMT, I operated under the California guidelines. All right. So let me make sure I heard that properly. So the EMT would have a uniform role according to the state in which they were practicing, but a paramedic's responsibilities could vary as much as county by county within a state. That's correct. So when a paramedic goes to work in a different county, they would have to become recertified ensuring that they are aware of all of the medication guidelines and different management techniques that they would be able to perform. 
and the way that we can keep this separate in my mind, which has never been separate before until today, Valerie, is the technician does more technician technical level tasks and the paramedic who is like a medical person has a greater scope of responsibility. Correct. But the EMT does do assessments. So they do medical and trauma assessments and they also do basic airway management. So they would insert like oral airways or nasal airways if the patient needed. What kind of training does that EMT get to do that? There are a lot of different types of EMT programs. They can vary anywhere from a short week-long program, or they can be as long as a semester or two. Boy, I, I'm wondering how much time it really takes to prepare a person for the sights and the sounds and the responsibilities of what they get involved with when they ride an ambulance. Um, Think like with most healthcare jobs, you don't really get a sense of it until you're actually out in the field seeing what you're going to be doing hands-on. Um, there's a lot that you aren't going to encounter, especially given the unpredictable nature of EMS work that you don't really get a sense for it until you're out in the field for a little while. And on another note, I did a podcast some time ago with a woman who was a trained support person. She worked with individuals who were in these emergency roles and help them with the aftermath mm -hmm. of the emotional impact of what they went through trying to save somebody's life or walking into gruesome scenes. That's a medical term, gruesome scenes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very difficult for many people to manage. And I would imagine you got your share of that in your experience as an EMT. Yes, definitely. And a lot of times we would rely on each other to debrief is kind of the term that we would use and we would just discuss calls. And if it was um, a really intense call or a really traumatic call, then we would make it a little bit more organized and get people together. But that honestly happened pretty seldomly um, in contrast with how often we saw pretty gruesome things, so. mm -hmm. which is honestly few and far between. Emergencies are subjective which any EMS provider can tell you. There's a lot of things that people call 911 for um, that are not exactly like what you would see on TV. A lot of little things too. One of the things that I have noticed in looking at EMS records is that there are different types of ambulances involved in this type of service. And I know this will vary from country to country, from state to state, even township to township. But sometimes attorneys turn to a legal nurse consultant and say, here are the medical records. And the nurse will look at them and say, the records start at the ER, but we need the EMS records also. Mm -hmm. What should we be telling our clients about the types of ambulances and the types of records that they should be looking for? I think it's important to note that it is part of a medical record that if someone calls 911, it's important to have that medical record for the EMS provider because it shows the continuity of care. And for example, in a medical malpractice case, it can show the contrast of care provided at the place that someone is picked up from by how much care the EMS provider gives and how much care is provided at the ER. Um, there are different levels of care for ambulances in that 
It may be staffed by just two EMTs, which would be considered BLS or basic life support, or it could be one EMT and one paramedic, which we would be considered advanced life support or ALS, or it could be two paramedics. Um, so that would also be considered ALS. Sometimes if a hospital can't provide a type of service and the patient needs to be transferred to a higher level of care, then a critical care transport um, may be called, which would include a nurse and any combination of paramedics and EMTs, and they can accommodate ventilators, medication drips, and anything that an ICU could accommodate within reason. And one of the things that I have seen is that typically they will cross-reference in the nurse's notes or in the EMT or paramedics notes if there's another ambulance called to the scene. So mm -hmm. the attorney might have gotten the BLS records, but not realized that there was a mobile intensive care unit that also responded to the scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a good point, because a lot of times it would be a BLS calling for ALS. Usually CCT is not included in a pre-hospital setup. Um, it's usually just for inter-facility transport, mm -hmm. um, with the exception of flight, which is a whole different situation, but that's a good point because if an EMT assesses that they have a patient that needs a, a level of care that they can't provide, for example, if a patient needs intubation or more advanced pain management, then they would call for ALS resources. Yes. That's a good point. And I'm thinking, Valerie, just of the other day when I was driving and an ambulance came on a crowded highway attempting to go through a red light to mm -hmm. get to where it wanted to go. There's got to be some risks associated with being inside an ambulance that could be running red lights, could be filled with equipment. Tell us about some of the hazards that could affect the people inside the ambulance. And that's a good point, too. As someone who would drive an ambulance, whether it's an EMT or a paramedic, you have to be completely aware of everything outside and inside of the ambulance. So there are different laws that govern how you drive an ambulance. So just like with your regular driver's license, you have to take an ambulance driver's test and there are certain rules that you need to follow. For example, if you're going into an intersection, you should be stopping before you enter the intersection and clearing each lane one at a time to avoid accidents. During this time, especially if a patient is in the back, your paramedic or your partner might be standing up in the back. So you constantly have to be watching them also and making sure that you're not braking or accelerating too hard because there could be sharps out or you know, a patient that's agitated and there are any number of things that could be going on. So you need to be aware of everything around you and any cars doing unpredictable things while you're trying to keep your partner and your patient safe. Have you ever heard of an ambulance being in a crash while transporting a patient? Yeah, many times. Many um, times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you would say, oh, rarely. <laughs> I mean, what kinds of things lead to those crashes? Um, I mean, there are a lot of high-risk situations that you're in, you know, whether you're responding to a, an accident that's on a freeway. Sometimes a car could hit a emergency vehicle. So there's a protocol with how to park vehicles when you're on a freeway. 
Um, for example, if you're on a busy freeway and the fire department is there first, then you position the ambulance in front of the fire truck if possible to help protect you and everyone that's on scene helping the patient. Or if an ambulance has to oppose traffic or drive into oncoming traffic in order to transport a patient or get to a call, that is one of the most risky situations. And you just have to be acutely aware of everything going on before you enter in that situation. Well, then you end up with even more of a problem. You have an injured person in the back of the ambulance and then the ambulance itself is hit. Mm -hmm. And if the ambulance is not able to drive, then you would have to get another ambulance to come and pick up the patient um, to get them to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. It happens. I'd like to focus on the hazards, not only from the ambulance being hit, but I have heard of people who've been injured inside the ambulance from the paramedics or EMTs who've been injured what kinds of things could cause them to be injured while they're transporting a patient? Well, in addition to the risks that we face in the hospital um, with agitated patients and things like that, there are situations that could escalate on scene that may require another person to ride along. Um, if someone is extremely violent, then we might have a law enforcement officer accompany us or a fire department personnel come with us and then the other crew will just meet them at the emergency room. Um, they do have restraints available on the ambulance. So if a person needs physical restraints or chemical restraints, that's something that they can accommodate. Um, needle sticks and all of that kind of thing is still an issue as well within the ambulance. Mm -hmm. And are there any loose objects that could potentially fly around? Is that a risk? That is a risk, and we try to mitigate those as much as possible by strapping down the monitor and any medications or sharps or anything like that. And within the ambulance, all the equipment is closed with um, little doors so things aren't flying out onto you during transport. But we try to secure as much as we can during transport. Tell us about some of the ways that there's liability for EMS and paramedic people who are involved in the middle of these transports? Um, the biggest risk I think that is faced by EMS providers is when people want to leave against medical advice and they want to not be transported to the hospital at all. Um, a lot of times people with diabetic emergencies or overdoses choose to not go to the hospital or if someone is having symptoms that resolve like a TIA or something and they choose not to go to the hospital, there's paperwork that they can sign just like in the hospital where the person can refuse transport. But sometimes the patient really does need to go and they end up needing to recall or something else happens and someone else needs to call for them. So I think that that's the biggest liability for them. So paramedics and EMTs have assessment tools that they can use just like hospital providers. Um, and assessing their level of consciousness and trying to make the best determination for that patient before they choose to let them sign AMA. In that situation, then you're talking about a possibility of a patient who is having a medical issue, needs to go to the hospital, refuses to go, then could turn around and say to the EMS, you should have insisted that I go 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and that has happened. Hmm. That is an interesting question because then it gets into the whole question of was that person compliant, uh, mentally alert, aware of the risks? Exactly. Hmm. I was thinking you would say things like um, patients being dumped off stretchers and falling and breaking bones and such. Maybe that doesn't happen as often as it does in my imagination. Not as much as in the movies. We have pretty good um, patient transport procedures and the gurneys are pretty secure. And as long as you're operating the gurney the way that it's supposed to be, um, it's pretty safe. I've never seen that happen. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. What if you could apply your nursing skills to work that doesn't involve a daily commute, 12 hour shifts, continuous exhaustion, and too often putting your life at risk? What stands in the way of you starting a new career where you can work at home, have flexible hours, and finally to get to spend some time with your family? In my book, get your first LNC case, I share what I learned about how to build a successful business. I went from being on the verge of losing my home to a career as a legal nurse consultant. I built a multi-million dollar independent legal nurse consulting business. The practices and principles you'll discover in this book come directly from what my colleagues and I learned about how to start a business. You may be thinking, it sounds great, but do I have what it takes to become an LNC? Do you like digging into medical records? Do details fascinate you? Do you enjoy writing reports? Do you enjoy researching and learning? Do you like to teach? And do you communicate well? These are the qualities a successful LNC needs. What else do you need? Get your first LNC case. This book takes you through the essential building blocks for starting your business. With chapters on my lessons from the first and subsequent cases, what it takes to get started, and various paths you can follow, overcoming career risks, and more, the book is full of practical and realistic advice. Take the first step and read Get Your First LNC Case. Go to lnc.tips forward slash creating series and buy an instant download of the book or use the button to head over to the sales page on Amazon for the paperback or Kindle copy. Now let's return to the show. The other thing that, that I would bring up is there was a case, and I believe it was in Chicago maybe a year ago, involving a couple of EMS people who positioned a man who was, I think, going through alcohol withdrawal, and they positioned him on his stomach and strapped him in real tight, and he died from positional asphyxia from that tight restraint preventing him from being able to breathe. Yeah, I heard about that case too. That's really awful that that happened to him um, because that's definitely not the standard of care that EMS providers should be giving. 
And I think that's an important consideration for legal nurses is understanding that EMS providers have standards of care similar to an hospital and understanding what is okay and what isn't. And something like that, I mean, it's not the standard. And just like in the hospital, there are other people on scene that could advocate for that patient and ensure that they were positioned properly um, on their back and just restrained in, in a proper way. And if there wasn't a good way, then just have the resources that they have available utilized in a way that is not going to cause the patient harm. Mm-hmm. If an LNC was helping an attorney with a case involving an EMS provider, are there national standards of care or textbooks or state regulations? Where would the LNC look for that information? It depends on who is providing care. So like I mentioned, if it's a paramedic or an EMT, that would vary. Um, But there is a national registry that EMTs have to take for their certification. and then they would look within the state and, and local guidelines for their standards of care. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's helpful to know. Mm-hmm. When I have looked at EMS records and summarizing medical records, I have been always in awe with the precision, especially the timing of 1232, notified 1234 en route to the scene to be able to detail well-written, computerized EMS records amazes me. And then I think, but how does that happen? They're in the back of an ambulance. It's moving. Surely they're not sitting there typing while they're doing patient care. Tell us how that happens. Um, So it depends on the agency because some are a little bit more old school and some have computers. So in some instances, if, uh, medic or an EMT has downtime, then they could be charting while they're doing patient care. Um, but a lot of times we just get really good at taking notes. So we would jot down times that everything happens or when you're dispatched, you have a phone or when I was working at pagers, even though those were still dated at the time. Um, but the times will come through on whatever device that we are dispatched or calls on. So then we can use those times in addition to times that we jot down for significant timeframes that care was provided so that when we get to the hospital, we can paint a really detailed picture of what happened so the hospital providers can then take over and provide care based on what we did. Makes me think of my days working in the hospital where we would write on sheets mm-hmm. and paper towels. The sheets was not supposed to be done, by the way, but the paper yeah. towels. Don't throw away my paper towel. I've got times and vital signs on it. Yep. Or I would use my, my uh, glove and I would write on my glove. So if I had vital signs and times, then I would just look down at my glove and <laughs> take notes from there or call a report to the hospital based on what was written on my glove. And God forbid I threw away a glove, <laughs> all my vitals. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I never thought about a glove as a source of writing materials, but that would work well and it would be attached to you. So you couldn't possibly lose it. Exactly. As long as they're clean gloves, <laughs> that presents a different problem. Yes. They get dirty and you have to rewrite your notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you didn't have dirty gloves too often, but I could see how that could happen, <laughs> especially if you're picking people up off the side of the road. Yeah. 
Well, we always follow standard precautions in the field too. Don't worry. <laughs> well, and, and that's important, especially when you're in an unknown situation, you have no knowledge of that person's medical history and what blood-borne diseases they might have. Exactly. The question of where to take the patient sometimes comes up because um, if people are looking at in hindsight at times about was that patient taken to the appropriate emergency department given the symptoms that they were presenting? Can you tell us about what goes into the decision-making on where the ambulance heads? Of course. Yeah, in any county that an EMS provider works, they need to be familiar with all of the hospitals in that area and what they provide. Um, for example, the county that I worked for had two trauma centers and various stroke centers. So the staff is well aware of what resources are available at which hospital. And when looking at medical records from a legal nurse perspective, it's important to note that if a patient is brought to the wrong hospital, then that essentially ends up in a delay of treatment. So if a patient needs to go to a stroke center, for example, and they are not taken to the right place, then an ambulance would need to be called to transport them to another hospital to get the correct care. So it's important in terms of liability, uh, making sure that the medic understands where to bring the patient. So you're saying that the if ambulance A took the patient to the incorrect place, ambulance A would not transport them to the second place. So they would have to get another ambulance to be transported. Exactly. So if a hospital doesn't have a cath lab or labor and delivery or any number of things that would require a higher level of care in a timely manner, then that would be a liability. Mm. And what was the impact for you? And I'm assuming this happened when you were in San Mateo County. If one hospital was on divert and not accepting anybody in the emergency department, what impact did that have on you when you were driving the ambulance? Um, luckily, it rarely happened in the area that we worked. It almost never happened. Um, there was one large MCI that I had the opportunity to respond to. And in that case, um, it was the plane crash at SFO, the Asiana crash that happened in 2013. So they let us know well ahead of time because there were so many patients being transported where we could bring everyone to. Um, mm -hmm. And SF General had set up triage tents and they just specified that each crew should go to uh, a specific designated hospital before we began transporting to make sure that everyone got the care that they needed. Luckily, being so close to San Francisco, there are tons of resources there and it's not too far away. So we would be able to go to the appropriate facility within a pretty good short amount of time. Are ambulances ever large enough to take two people at the same time? It depends on the acuity of the patient because it only has room for one gurney. Um, but for example, during that incident, we transported three patients because two were able to sit. Um, so we were able to put them in different seats within the ambulance and had one patient strapped to the gurney. Mm. But then mm. my partner was not able to sit down. So he was walking around in the back of the ambulance, treating the three patients as we were transporting. 
with lights and sirens. And there's not a lot of room in that ambulance, is there? I imagine it was a pretty tight quarters. Yes. Wow. I also wanted to ask you about documentation standards. We discussed the fact that many ambulances use computerized documentation and that you're writing your details on your glove first, if if necessary. Sometimes. (laughs) Is there some standard that says that for certain types of conditions, is there a generally accepted standard, for example, that would say if the patient is presenting with these complaints, that there are common elements that would need to be documented? Yeah, of course, the same way that the hospital has standards for charting. Um, For all patients, we would have to take vitals every 15 minutes, and if they're critical, every five minutes. So I think that that's really important to note. For longer transports, for interfacilities, sometimes they would allow 30 minutes, but that would only be on a very stable patient. But generally, the standard of care would be 15 minutes, and that would be um, blood pressure, respiratory rate, pulse ox, and pulse. Um, We wouldn't really be able to take a temperature in the ambulance that's accurate, so that wasn't really part of that assessment. But for a cardiac patient, there's a specific assessment, and especially for the paramedic scope of practice, which I can't really speak to because I was never licensed as a paramedic, that they would have to do EKGs within a certain amount of time, um, transmit the EKGs to the receiving hospital. Um, There's a whole ton of stuff that they would be responsible for in terms of specific assessments for different diagnoses like stroke, heart attack, active labor, trauma, all those things. What do you miss about not being an EMT any longer? I just miss all the weird stories. I miss the unpredictability of it. I miss driving on the wrong side of the road because I can't do that in my car without getting pulled over. Um, I miss a lot of it. Actually, I kept working as an EMT for two years after I was working in ICU because I loved it so much. Um, Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that job a lot. And speaking of weird situations, what's the most unusual passenger you ever transported? So I didn't personally transport this patient, um, for lack of better words, Um, but there was a crew shall remain unnamed that was getting off duty and getting gas and one of the crew members liked to hunt and when he was pulling up to the gas pump getting gas there was someone that had a buck a dead deer in the back of his truck and the EMT went over and said hey I really like that deer and the guy in the truck said do you want it and the EMT said sure so they put him in the back of the ambulance and drove him back I don't know if I should be telling that Put him in back in the ambulance and drove him to wherever, to the final destination of the deer. Um, I'm wondering about, does deer blood leave traces? Can you imagine the fun that the forensic team would have if they were coming in and checking an ambulance for DNA and saying, well, wait a minute. This doesn't look right. (laughs) It's not right. That's not right. Oh, yes. Well, That certainly is an unusual passenger. We appreciate that story and the image that it brings up. Hopefully the deer fit well within the doors and they could close it and nobody passing the deer in the ambulance on the road would necessarily know what was inside. Exactly. And luckily they didn't get another call after that and everything was deconned and there was all 
you never know it was back there. And yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. You just used the term deconned. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah. So after every call, no matter how minor or critical, the ambulance crew would be responsible for decontaminating the ambulance before the next patient. So after the patient was dropped off, the EMT or whoever was available would go back out to the ambulance, remove any of the sheets because a lot of them were disposable, um, wipe down and disinfect every surface within the ambulance and reapply the disposable sheets and everything. And at the end of every shift, then the ambulance gets deconned again by the crew that um, details the ambulances and restocks everything in between shifts. It's an infection well, control me measurement that's super important. Yeah, I could see how critical that would be. Mm -hmm. And also the importance of restocking thoroughly because yeah if you're missing a critical piece of equipment when you're on the side of the road or in a field somewhere, there's no easy way to replace that. Right. It's a liability. Liability. Um, the ambulance is stocked. And then we would also have jump bags that would be filled with equipment that we would bring into each call. Um, and when we responded with fire departments, then they would have their own equipment also. So they would also have a jump bag monitor that had the capability to do 12 leads, um, CO2 measurements and everything that was needed for any type of call. You know, you bring me back, Valerie, to an experience I had when I was in a gate in an airport in Florida. A woman who was waiting to board the plane quietly died. Mm -hmm. And the man next to her, who was unrelated to her, suddenly noticed she was dead mm -hmm. and started screaming. <laughs> and the call went out is there a nurse in the gate or a doctor? Mm -hmm. And uh, before I could raise my hand, an emergency room nurse came roaring around the corner. I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse. And she starts doing CPR and mouth to mouth. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, good. Uh, I don't have to do mouth to mouth. That's good. Yeah. But the, when the EMS people came, they ripped open this woman's blouse. They were doing compressions. They were putting on monitor pads and hooking her up to an EKG and it was a it was a strange feeling to be boarded by Rose. All right, group one, one and two and three and group two, now it's time for you to board. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> she didn't come back to us. She didn't get on that plane, at least not alive. And it was such a juxtaposition of a routine event of waiting in a waiting area to all of a sudden being taken over by this frantic attempt to resuscitate this woman. That's really sad and probably traumatic for the person that was sitting next to her. Yeah. Who probably never thought in his lifetime that he would ever sit next to a person in the gate who would quietly die. Yeah. Yeah, that's intense. I mean, at least it was before they boarded because we covered San Francisco airport and I ran a few codes within the airport. Oh. Uh, well, it's always an interesting experience. Memorable. <laughs> yes, I would imagine it is. Hmm. Valerie, I know that people who've been listening to this program would be interested in knowing how to reach you. Could you provide your contact information? Yeah, I'm available on LinkedIn. 
Valerie Creel, and I have a new website that I just launched um, called Bridgepoint Legal Nurse Consulting, and it's bridgepointlnc.com. All right. And do you provide expert witness services? I do. I provide ICU expert witness services, and I provide behind-the-scenes medical record review on MedMal, personal injury, and more. Thank you so much. I appreciate sharing stories with you. I'm going to carry around the image of a deer riding in the back of an ambulance for a while. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And for you who's been listening to this program, if you are not already receiving the transcripts of this program, be aware that you can go to podcast.legalnursebusiness.com and sign up to receive the transcripts, and you'll be able to refer to the information that Valerie and other guests have provided. Stay tuned for who we have coming up next. Coming up next, you'll have an opportunity to meet a nurse who has a specialty in wound ostomy and continence nursing. She's an expert witness and we dove into the topic of wound care management. Terea Rodriguez has a practice as a consultant in New York City area and focuses on giving guidance to bedside nurses and managing wounds herself. What did we cover in your podcast, Terea? Well, today we covered debridement. We covered how to get certification, the different types of certification boards, and the use of the differences between sharps and chemical debridement. And just in general about um, mistakes that we see at the bedside when and management of wounds when it comes to nurses, wound care nurses and physicians and understanding the different um, scopes between the three. And so this has been really great. And nurses can also find out more about where to find me on my LinkedIn. This is a podcast that you'll want to be sure to listen to and keep in mind when you have an opportunity to be involved in a case that progressed into a wound and you've got questions about how the wound was managed. Watch for Terea Rodriguez's podcast on Legal Nurse Podcast coming up next. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.